This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everyone. It is fall, which means it's National Novel Writing Month season, a.k.a. NaNoWriMo. And if you don't know about NaNoWriMo, it is a challenge to write 50,000 words of your story in the month of November. That's 30 days. And we believe that a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife. And here are two things to think about in order to encourage you to sign up for NaNoWriMo. One, it's kind of like a writing boot camp. It trains you to be the writer by having you show up every day to write and to reach for a goal. But then it's also a rollicking writing community. We have a thousand volunteers around the world who organize in-person writing events, and we're basically everywhere on the internet. It's a galvanizing force to feel that the whole world is writing with you, and it's free. So all you have to do is go to nanorimo.org and sign up. It's like signing up for any social media profile, and then get ready to write on November 1st. I'll see you there. Hello, narrators, chroniclers, all-knowers, and tell-miners. Grant, you know, the last time we got together for coffee, you casually suggested that it was too late for us to talk about Barbie, but you seemed kind of bummed about it, like Barbie had had its moment, and you even took down your profile pic on social media with you dressed as a dapper Ken, uh, but I wanted to breathe a little life into your love for the movie before the end of the year, because it's connected to this week's show in a very high-level way, uh, so this is for you today, <laughs> this week, for Barbie, for <laughs> okay. meta-narration, yes. I love that. I love this. Maybe we can make uh, my Ken photo, my official right-minded photo. Um, I don't know if that would increase or decrease listenership. <laughs> Pro- probably the, the latter. Um, it was kind of a creepy photo, I think. I loved it. <laughs> oh, thank you. But I'm, I'm wearing, um, you know, my figurative blonde wig for this moment, Brooke. And I, and I just want to apologize for any Ken-like, narcissistic, existential, angsty songs I <laughs> indulged in during my teens and made um, poor young girls listen to. That part of the movie was one of my favorite parts, actually. That's hilarious. Well, I want to draw a couple distinctions here uh, around terminology, because the reason I was thinking about Barbie for today is because it does a meta narrative, right? The Barbie movie is a meta narrative, which the definition of that is a narrative account that experiments with or explores the idea of storytelling, often by drawing attention to its own artificiality. Uh, And so that's as I said, a great definition of what Barbie achieved insofar as it's like a movie that's looking at itself and at the history and the impact of Barbie from the outside in. But where writing is concerned, there's a voice that I've been aware of in memoir for a really long time, which is that of the writer, you know, who is sort of outside of their own story because they're writing from a more present moment and sometimes interjecting into the narrative. And lots of times I feel like memoirists do that as a compulsion because they're arguing or thinking like, well, I didn't know such and 
such then. I understand something different now. And so it, it ends up feeling like an omniscient know-all narrator that's coming in to tell the reader what they do know now. But typically, Grant, I really recommend against doing that almost always. And the reason is because it is intrusive. Like it has a jarring effect usually, uh, mostly because writers are showcasing their lack of control when they do this. And it reminds me a little bit of like a driver drifting over the double yellow lines, you know, into a new lane without realizing that they're doing it. Uh, But when it's done intentionally, it's pretty amazing. And that was what I saw with today's guest, Maggie Smith, and her new book, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. Uh, And we're going to tackle this subject matter because it is a somewhat like sophisticated craft topic to take on in a podcast. You know, Maggie is not exclusively narrating from the now, um, you know, so this voice of the writer crafting her tale is part of the book, but not all of the book. But she's also doing classic memoir stuff, which is like the two eyes that are in memoir, the character eye who's in the scene and the narrator eye who's telling the story. So Grant, I'm I'm kind of weaving all this as context because I'm very interested in narration. I'm sort of desperate to unpack it always for the sake of finding better ways to explain it and also to better understand it. And I'm curious, you know, do you think that this kind of narrative voice in memoir, the writer who's telling from the vantage point of now is parallel to an omniscient voice in fiction. And I'm just curious, you know, if we could talk a little bit about omniscience in general. Yeah, Brooke, I think this does, you know, might deserve a PhD thesis, <laughs> deep subject. Um, no, it's, it's, it's so interesting because I've, I've never thought about how that perspective in memoir is akin to the omniscient voice in fiction. And I guess it's as close as you can get to the omniscient voice because you know more than you did at the time from your present perspective, the time that you're narrating, yet it's different uh, than the omniscient voice because you, you still have a limited perspective even towards your own life. So I think the key word there is parallel, as you say, a kind of kissing cousin to omniscience, but but not the same. And, and as for why the omniscient voice has, has fallen out of favor, it, you know, it must be because of the rise of the self or, or self-involvement in the last, you know, hundred or so years, I think, starting with the advent of psychology. And and I actually still write most of my stories through the perspective of third person limited omniscience. And the, the key word there is limited. So my stories and novels are written in the third person, but they still tend to closely follow usually one character, sometimes two characters, whereas a true omniscient narr- narrator is more you know, in a godlike role, capable of seeing and knowing everything about a story. And it sounds like a fine line, but it's actually a significantly different point of view and and very different style of narration. And yeah, like I said earlier, I actually think this would be an interesting PhD topic to figure out why first person narration has essentially eclipsed third person narration these days, especially in genre fiction, uh, so much so that it can seem like the default in fiction these days. But then all you have to do is, you know, go on social media and everything is me, me, me and influencer, influencer, influencer. So, you know, that might be the answer. We're living in a very me centered time where people are narrating their lives to the world constantly. So stories are also following that pattern. So I wonder if, if, if maybe we need omniscient narration to make a comeback to stop gazing at our navels and, and look at the wider world more. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, memoir, of course, the first person has always been the default and should be because the author is the narrator. Um, but 
it's kind of a flip conversation in a way, because as the memoir genre is expanding, we're actually seeing writers play with different perspectives and doing really unique things with point of view, like KSA Lehman's book, Heavy, which is near classic status at this point, uh, writes in the second person, much of the book, writing to his mother, addressing her in the you. Uh, and Ocean Vuong does the same thing in On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. Carmen Maria Machado's book In the Dream House has tons of second person narration. Uh, Safekeeping by Abigail Thomas uses first and second and third person. So I really love, you know, that we're experimenting with form. And my sense is that all of these efforts come about from a desire to play with form and maybe to showcase that memoir is as malleable as fiction, uh, you know, even though you're locked inside the head of the narrator because you are he or she or they. Uh, but I definitely appreciate you know, what you're saying about the memoirist writing in the present still having a limited perspective. Um, I mean, that's so true. And it's also important to remember as you're finding your way with your story. Uh, I do want to go back to what you're saying about omniscience, though, you know, this whole idea that it's fallen out of style, and maybe because of our self-focused culture. Uh, I also think part of the problem is that writers just generally have trouble controlling an all-knowing narrator. Like when it's not well-controlled, it's just head hopping and head hopping is a mistake. And it's a mistake that a lot of new novelists make. Uh, so I just find this kind of a curious and really interesting conversation sort of ripe for exploration for writers. Um, and I had never imagined that memoir had an omniscient voice, but that was what got a little bit unlocked for me and you could make this place beautiful because there is a particular kind of omniscience with a narrator who, like you said, doesn't know all, but does know much more than the I, you know, the protagonist in the scene and knows more than the I of the narrator because of this later vantage point. And so it's just been nice for me because I, you know, I teach memoir and I feel like I'm always learning something when I read more, which is why I'm always encouraging my writers to read as much as you possibly can. Uh, and Maggie has just executed something really beautiful and brilliant in this new book. And I was so inspired when I read it. Completely. I loved her book so much and I loved the different approaches she, she took. And, and I, and with that in mind, I know exactly what you mean because we, you know, we, we, we read a lot and we're so immersed in our genres. So when you see something that really stands out and that's really inspiring and gives you new insight, it's just, it's just wonderful how it can take you to new places. And Maggie's book is a perfect example of that. And as you were talking, I was thinking about when I was a young writer and first read William Faulkner, who really explored things like point of view and stream of consciousness and narration through a polyphony of voices, all of which, you know, super tough to do on the page. Uh, but it did kind of bring a new world of narration to me. Yeah. And I, I want to pull out these words that we're circling, you know, the ideas of like pulling it off or executing, or you might call getting away with something. Mm -hmm. uh, because that's the thing, like it takes both skill and time to master. Uh, and this is where I want to go back to Barbie really quick, because mm -hmm. Greta Gerwig could certainly be characterized as one such writer in an adjacent industry who's playing with form and pulling things off to much delight. So let's just go back one second to talk about that meta narrative, uh, because there's an all knowing voice in the movie, right in the form of Helen Mirren's voiceover. And voiceovers in film are that all knowing, right? They're the omniscient or even future self in Barbie Mirren's voice is that. Um, and I was also thinking of 
Stand By Me, right, which is just a helpful one because so many people have seen it, where Richard Dreyfus narrates the film as the adult Gordy. So his character has two voices, the child and the adult. Uh, and Grant, back to your love for Barbie. I just wanted to have you have a chance to say what you loved about it, even though we're well into the fall. Yeah, I need another PhD thesis <laughs> for that one, I think. I mean, I, I just liked there were so many layers to it. And the meta narrative, you know, including the meta narrative, as you put it, and it was it was fascinating that you know the characters were dolls, yet they were dolls that were part of a history, and that history was both personal and individual to all of us, you know, as we experienced them as kids, uh, and yet it was also how Barbie, you know, evolved over different eras. Um, yet the dolls went went further in the movie, you know, to become real characters that we cared about. And in caring about them, we had to confront ourselves and our own experiences of sexism and gender roles and beauty standards and so much more. And then, and then the movie was just so witty and emotional and satirical and beautiful and, and so many other things. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that it's, it's hard to do all of that in a single film and to do it with a doll right. <laughs> as your starting point and a doll that has so much cultural baggage, you know, so many storylines of experiences, you know, I, I just think that that was brilliant. And I think one definition of making something brilliant is that you have often have to take, you know, you have to risk absolute failure and embarrassment. And after I watched Barbie, I, I just thought of what could have gone wrong with that film, but didn't go wrong. And so I thought Greta Gerwig, you know, she took that risk and she succeeded brilliantly. Yeah, beautifully put. And I agree. And, you know, it may seem like a little bit of a bridge uh, for listeners to be thinking about, like, why are you talking about Barbie and Maggie Smith's memoir? But for me, there was just some parallels there, you know, and what you're talking about, like risking it all, risking, you know, embarrassment and showing things that are hard, you know, the hardest parts of your life, but doing it with like beauty and to great effect and with great skill. Uh, and as I said, you can make this place beautiful, just unlocked some things for me. Uh, that have been inspiring in my own writing journey. And so I'm really grateful. Um, and I'm extra looking forward to this interview that is shortcoming with Maggie Smith right after this short transitional interval. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, everyone. We have Maggie Smith on the show with us today. Maggie is the award-winning author of You Could Make This Place Beautiful, Good Bones, The Well Speaks of Its Own Poison, Lamp of the Body, and the National Bestsellers, Goldenrod, and Keep Moving, Notes on Loss, Creativity, and Change. 
a 2011 recipient of a Creative Writing Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. Smith has also received several Excellence Awards from the Ohio Arts Council, two Academy of American Poets Prizes, a Pushcart Prize, and others. Maggie, this is incredible. And you're also widely published in the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Paris Review, and elsewhere. You have a beautiful social media account where people should absolutely go follow you if they're not already at Maggie Smith Poet. Maggie, I adored your memoir. We're so happy to have you on the show today. Thank you. Oh, gosh. Thanks for having me. My first question is about narration. Uh, this is the first thing that struck me when I read your book was your narrative voice. And in part, that's because it breaks from traditional memoir. And I know you come to memoir from other genres. And so I'd love to hear you talk about your inspiration for your choice for how to narrate this book, especially because it's often told from the now, which I might describe as kind of a, a meta narrator in a sense who is speaking from the, the point of writing the book rather than living in the book in scenes. So I'd love to just hear you riff on that a bit. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. It's, it's a book about my life, but it's a book about my life as a writer. And so there is a kind of writerly voice that is referencing the writing of the book Yeah. <laughs> in addition to, to the book. So there's that kind of meta layer. And it's funny. I knew that that would be a kind of love it or loathe it choice. Um, I think fairly early on and it happened to me naturally. So it's, it's funny to think like, well, it breaks from what one might expect from a memoir. And I was like, well, I wasn't going into this having written a memoir before. So I kind of came to it with a somewhat blank slate as a poet thinking, okay, so how do I tell the story of my life or how do I tell this particular story of my adult life. And if I'm going to be this vulnerable in the content, it is going to help me actually, if I think of the reader as being a human being I'm speaking to, as opposed to some faceless group of Goodreads readers, <laughs> right? Um, and so disclosing as much as I did about my life thinking about handing this book over to masses felt um, not great, but thinking about handing this book to humans felt better. And so once I thought about it that way, and I really thought about handing it to a human reader, I thought, what do I want to say to that person? Like, what does that person need to know? And actually, what does that person not need or frankly deserve to know or have owed them from this time in my life. And then because I'm holding things back, I don't want there to be this sort of elephant in the room where I pretend I'm giving you the whole story and then you pretend you're satisfied. I would like to be able to have a conversation with you around the fact that I'm holding some things back for myself that I feel are private and sort of setting some boundaries. And I respect you, human reader, enough that like we don't have to play games around that. Like I can say I'm offering you this, but this is not on the menu in this book or in this scene. And eventually, I think having written enough of that book, I started seeing it as an opportunity perhaps 
to have a conversation with the reader or for the reader to have a conversation with themselves or with their friends about memoir in general and life writing in general and what our expectations are as readers and what our comfort level is as writers. And there's always going to be, I think, a gap between the reader's curiosity, which is natural and human. And I think not like an ugly, nosy thing at all. I'm curious too about other people's lives. But there is, I think, a gap or or maybe should be a gap between what we want from others and what they should feel like they need to to give us on paper forever and ever. Amen. And so that is really where the narrative voice came from, is for me kind of making it up as I go in a really messy, cobbling it together way and trying to to really negotiate with myself as a poet. Okay, well, now I'm telling these stories as myself, right? Like gone is the poetic speaker, gone is the the sort of like layer of myth or or even um, metaphor that I can kind of hide behind in a book like this. And so how can I make it livable and shareable for myself? And this is the way that I, that I did it. Thank you so much, Maggie. I love hearing about your process there. And I love the very intentional way you're writing for another human reader rather than these masses of Goodreads reviewers. At the same time, like, your book is wildly successful. And, and I mean this in the best possible way, but I'm, I'm curious whether you've been surprised by the success. And I, I ask that because it's so hard for memoirists to break out. And you wrote a book about divorce, which is a topic that's been pretty well covered in memoir. And so I just love to hear you talk about the ways in which you could make this place beautiful has struck a chord with readers and what, what you make of its reach. Um, I find it shocking. <laughs> um, and not because of the content, because actually I think I think we have a pretty insatiable desire to read about other people's lives and particularly, no judgment, other people's failings, other people's disappointments. I think, I mean, I know as a reader, I find comfort in reading about the ways that other people have navigated hardship. Um, even if there's not a quote unquote happy ending, um, the person wrote the book and had the wherewithal to write the book and is still standing after the publication of the book. And that's not nothing. So I, I like reading books where um, I can see someone grappling with something or puzzling something out. So the the subject matter striking a chord and in lots of ways doesn't surprise me. I also think coming off of like, you know, we're still in a pandemic, but coming off of like lockdown mode, um, women are tired. And so I knew that a lot of the content around, frankly, patriarchy <laughs> and caregiving and art as work and these sorts of negotiations that happen and sort of power dynamics within families, particularly like cishet marriages, I had a feeling that those things would strike chords with people. I think what has surprised me so much about that the memoir succeeded, quote unquote, whatever that means, um, or just didn't fail, <laughs> is um, is the structure. I took a lot of risks. I mean, I mean, we've already talked about some of them. I took a lot of risks in this book 
And I really did write it as a poet. And I knew when I turned it in that this book was not for everyone, not just because of the content, but primarily because of the structure. And so it's it's honestly been really gratifying for me that people have embraced it, not only despite its oddity, but as I hear from people more and more because of its oddity and and that, I don't know, the poet in me really revels in, in having taken like a lot of formal and craft related risks in the book and not being, I mean, oh yeah, I'm getting dinged for them sometimes, um, which is why you shouldn't read Goodreads. Um, but <laughs> I, I think it's it's been really nice to see that plenty of people who who might not think that a book that looks or moves or sounds like this one is actually for them. Um, like maybe they'll read another book that doesn't look or sound or move the way that they think they like books to look or sound or move. And, and that will get them off on a new, a new path. I love that, Maggie. And also, I mean, I'm one of these people who just found your book, like, it almost felt like a magic trick to me in a way, because when I first started reading it, I was like, what is she doing? And then the more <laughs> I read, I was like, oh, my God, I actually love this. And so it, it took a second. I mean, I'm a person who reads memoir, I've taught and published memoir for years and years and years. And so, you know, it's true, like you're breaking rules, you're playing with form. And I want to bring you back to another craft question, just because uh, we so rarely get to talk to someone, you know, explicitly about doing something different. And you so are. And I think a lot of that is, like you said, in structure, but it's also in narration. Mm -hmm. And so even though you said it's like, it was like a messy mosaic <laughs> that you kind of pieced together, can you speak a little bit about the actual like number of revisions perhaps that had to go into thinking that through? Because I'm sure like as you were piecing it, you know, I, I can't even imagine actually, you know, when I thought about just like <laughs> the laying out of the structure and how you accomplished it. Um, uh, yeah, I, it was incredibly messy, cobbled together. Someone asked me recently, like, did you outline this? And I started laughing. <laughs> it's like, um, do you really, they're giving me way too much credit. If this feels outlined, that is a complete mistake. Um, I wrote all of the vignettes completely independently of one another, not in chronological order at all. So, you know, my kids would go off to school and that day I would be like, what story do I want to tell? And I would write. And, you know, m most of the chapters are less than a page long. I mean, they're very brief, which is why the book does not have a table of contents, because when they poured it, it looked insane. The table of <laughs> contents was like six pages long. And I thought, this is not the welcome mat I want for this reader, because it really looks like you're entering some sort of insane person's book. Um, and that's not going to work. But no, I mean, I, I wrote each piece individually. Um, I worked with Megan Steelstra, actually, on this book. I reached out to her. I slid into her DMs. Um, and we were friends from afar, but hadn't met in person and actually didn't meet until after the book was published. And I just said, do you work one-on-one -on -one with people? Because I know enough to know what I don't know. And having written books of poetry doesn't actually prepare me for knowing what I can get away with in this book. And also how does one write 65,000 words? Because I honestly had no idea as someone who writes poems that are typically less than 17 lines long um, and has never thought about word count. I had no idea how to, 
sort of sustain. Uh, and I, and I, I don't consider myself a storyteller. I, I'm not really a storyteller primarily in my poems, or at least I don't think of myself in that way. I think of myself as um, like an image presenter or an experience distiller or crystallizer more than a storyteller. So I just thought, well, this is going to be, this is going to be interesting. And so with Megan, I wrote all these pieces in no particular order. I had no idea how I wanted to make them live together between two covers. And I sent them all to her and basically said in the email, well, this is a mess. Good luck. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Let's Zoom and talk about it. And she actually helped me. Um, She suggested let's color code these different strands because I see different strands happening in this book. There's like the forward moving spine of the sort of discovery and the sort of divorce narrative that that runs through and is chronologically sound. You know, there is a beginning point and an end point. And then there are these flashbacks to earlier in the relationship. And then there are these stories about your kids. And then there are the quotes from other writers. And then there are these unanswerable questions. And then there are the questions you imagine the reader having. And then there are these prose poem sections in italics. What are those doing? That's a strand. And so I printed the whole thing out after meeting with her and spread everything on my living room floor and got out Crayola markers and swiped a color at the top of each one. And some of them, I was like, is this a pink or a yellow? Like kind of two different things are happening in this section. Mm -hmm. And I think I need to figure out what it is and where it belongs because tonally, the sections in italics that are these metaphor sections have a different voice. Um, There's not a lot of contractions used in those sections. It's a little bit more formal, um, a little bit more of the sort of like what you might think of as a poetic voice. And those, and then there's like me dropping F-bombs and sounding like (laughs) myself, not a poet, um, my living self um, in other sections. And there's a lot more contraction usage and it sounds more like me speaking to you in those places. And so I sat, got down on the floor and I started to shuffle them so that pink would be spread out fairly evenly. Blue would be spread out fairly evenly. There was no um, like pink, pink, green, blue, yellow. There was no uh, formula or or real pattern. Interesting. So it was a craft project. Um, And honestly, for someone who's used to putting together books of poems, this is how I put together a book of poems. I print it all out. I look at the way one poem ends and I think, okay, what is the beginning of the next poem that seems like the natural transition from this one. And despite this being a narrative, I still assembled it really intuitively also based on tone and emotional import and image um, sharing um, and those kinds of threads, trying to keep them evenly balanced from start to finish. It's interesting, Maggie, because when I hear you talk about your process and the way you assembled the book, it reminds me of Mary Robeson's Why Did I Ever, which is a novel. I don't know if you, you're familiar with that. I haven't, but now I'm going to add it to my list of things to read. Yeah, she wrote it very much like you. She would just write. She just went out and wrote. She like drove in her car and like literally went to a dead end or someplace that was private and wrote a vignette or a snippet. And she had no intention for them building beyond their individual little pieces. 
And then she says that there is no true order, that the book could be read in, in different orders, which I find interesting. I don't know. I'd have to maybe think about that and challenge it with a rereading of it. But it's it's very similar. And I, I love um, actually your definition of storyteller as image presenter, perhaps, you know, like I think I think they can go together. Yeah, yeah. That kind of is a lead into my question. Because you use a lot of effective metaphors and often come back to them multiple times, you know, like the, the, the idea of being out on a boat with your family and how this experience changes when it's just you and your ex-husband and then you as a couple with your kids and then post-divorce. So I was wondering if you can, you know, talk more about the importance of these recurring elements, these recurring questions, which you also do. And, and I guess, like, what, what, what do you think they offer readers through that, you know, recurrence, you know, which is a poetic device as well? It is. I mean, I think when I'm writing a book of poems, whenever I have a series and I, and every book of mine, every poetry book of mine has at least one series in it. Um, all poems that kind of belong together and they never live together in the book. And I remember Beth Ann Fennelly asking me once, I think it was after Good Bones was published. She said, why do you have these series, but none of them are clustered together? Like you have four sections in this book, but all of the series are spread out. They're not, they don't live side by side. And I was like, oh, I don't like that. Like, I actually don't like it in a book of poems when all of the poems that are like each other live side by side. It feels too monotonous to me. I prefer the breadcrumb trail model where you get a bit of something and then a little bit later you get another bit of it and you get that like, oh, I know what that is. And so you get this moment of familiarity and for a reader, as a reader, I find that really satisfying. I like when I'm getting signposts, it's almost like, oh, you're going the right way. Like you're reading this correctly, mm -hmm. as opposed to just being inundated and having sort of a compartmentalized structure and then moving on to like the next kind of poem or kind of story. And so it's natural for me to write repeating things and spread them out. That's just how I build books. So that was a natural continuation, I think, from how I make a book of poems. But also kind of psychologically in this book, I would say the main, <laughs> the main psychological kind of mode of you could make this place beautiful is rumination. <laughs> It's, um, you know, the thing I dealt with in therapy the most, the thing that made me lose the most sleep, the constant replaying of tiny films in your mind or on the insides of your eyelids when you try to sleep because you just can't figure out what the hell happened or what's going on or how to move forward. And so that kind of looping I think of it as like a corkscrew because it's not like I was standing in place, just spinning like a dog before it lies down. I was moving forward in time, but also constantly going over the same material, sort of like moving forward in a corkscrew like fashion. And so I thought, how do I get at that narrative structure in the book? Like, how do I write the corkscrew? And writing the corkscrew was about moving forward in time along that spine, but then leafed between hitting these same, like, oh, here it comes again. I can't rid myself or sort of exercise these things from my mind. And so I kept traveling that same territory. And unfortunately, 
you had to travel that territory with me too. <laughs> I dragged the reader through my through my rumination spiral. Hmm. Well, in the very best way, I have to say. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, you've written a book that's about yourself, but it's also about a relationship. Uh, and I mentioned I teach memoir, so I know very well how much writers angst about what they are allowed or not allowed to write about another person, what they should write, worried about getting sued or just annihilated by that person. So what advice do you have for memoirists who want to write about other people or another person? And I, I imagine there's too much to say about your approach to this, but I just wondered if you could touch on it. Yeah. I mean, I remember talking really early with Megan about this because I have always been able to sort of couch things in a way in poems that gave me cover, even if it was thin cover, like no one sues you over a poem. No one sues you about writing about your divorce in a poem. I mean, I'd done that in Goldenrod and it, it felt fine and it was fine, but this was different. Um, I think in part because I knew I was sort of telling, you know, I mean, um, it's, it's hard to write a memoir that involves other people and not feel in a way like a tattletale and then to be thinking a bit about what the consequences may or may not be. And, you know, the subject in some ways, or at least the other person, not the subject of this book, I think I'm the subject of this book, mm -hmm. but the other person in this book um, is a litigator. So my, um, my concerns were, maybe outsized compared to what one might think they were up against in, in a thing like this. And so I talked to Megan about it and I was like, how do I do this? Like, how do I tell these stories in a way that keeps it centered on me and my experience, which I own and can claim and should be able to describe, but also, you know, tell stories that aren't mine to tell disclose things that are kind of none of my business to disclose? Um, and how do I also protect my children in the process of doing this? Like I had all of these considerations. Don't get sued. Don't tell stories that aren't mine to tell. And don't sort of give away anything about my kids that will embarrass them later or that just are frankly their stories to tell because they have their own and they have their own voice. And I don't want to usurp that by sort of bogarting all of their life material in my own book. And so, you know, her advice to me, and, and it's, it's the advice I, I would give to someone else is make sure that you're staying grounded in your own body. And that was really the thing for me is my lived experience, what was done in my presence, said to me, shared with me, without ever projecting into someone else's emotional state or trying to sort of ventriloquize into, you know, someone else. And so I don't, I can't pretend to know how someone else felt or thought or what they might've been thinking. And I don't ever try to sort of project myself into someone else's thinking. All I can say is what they said and did. And I basically can hand that to the reader and the reader can make certain inferences about motivation or mental state based on the context but I'm not going to bridge that gap for the reader because it, it also wouldn't be appropriate for me to speak to things I don't understand uh, myself. So that was really what it was for me is how do I, and also just approaching this, approaching this project with a lot of 
mostly curiosity and empathy and not needing to be the good guy. Like, uh, you know, I, I really went into the writing of this book feeling wronged in lots of ways, but also knowing I wasn't the hero of the story and not needing to be the hero of the story and not needing for that to be the outcome of this book is like, see, I'm good. That's not interesting. It's also not true, but it's, it's really not interesting. I don't want to read a book about someone having a hard time and being the good guy. Um, and I don't want to write a book about someone having a hard time and being the good guy. And so really letting go of that, that narrative allowed me, I think, to be more nuanced and as sort of a byproduct of that, be more protective of everyone involved. Hmm. That's so interesting, Maggie, because I think that sensibility really leads to making something beautiful out of a really hard situation. Mm. And and you definitely show that things are not all bad, just as they're not all good. And I, and I think you've really struck a gorgeous balance in showing grief and loss, but also the resilience and beauty that often accompanies hard things. And so I'm wondering if in closing, you could offer some words of wisdom for writers who are working through their grievances or their anger, who also want to eventually arrive at something that, that showcases the beauty, like you were able to do, the beauty and the nuance. I mean, I really went into this book with all questions. And I think beginning with questions is for me the key. One of the, I think the like one of the worst pieces of writing advice that people are often given is write what you know. <laughs> it's it. like the Hate most it. terrible <laughs> writing advice, I think, because you know, a, a, like alongside that is sort of like as a poet, I never write what I know. That's not interesting. If I know something, why would I write about it? I'm not writing a manual. This is not in, this is not at, this book should not be read as instructions about how to like get divorced or survive divorce. It's not a manual. Um, I'm not telling you what I know. I'm not actually showing up imparting wisdom. It's not self-help, although it may help you. I, I really think approaching something with questions and trying to learn something or discover something about yourself, your experience, the topic, whatever the thing is, via the writing is probably the most interesting approach. Because if you're not discovering something in the process, probably your reader's not going to either. And no one wants to read your tome of wisdom. I think people really do want to see other people working things out for themselves. I remember my daughter, when she was in elementary school, had a math journal. And I thought that was the most ridiculous idea. Although as someone who's terrible at math, I thought, well, maybe I could have gotten more points if there was also a journal aspect to math <laughs> classes. But the point was, you couldn't just give the answer. You actually had to, in sentences, describe how you figured it out. So there was like a discursive part of the math problem. Like, show me your answer and then show me your thinking. And I'm so much more engaged in a piece of writing, whether it's a poem, an essay, a story, a novel, a memoir, when I see the person's thinking in the sentences. And so that I think you can only achieve by approaching the piece of writing with more questions than answers and writing your way through those questions. So it's perhaps abstract advice. 
<laughs> but that would be Probably it. has to be, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's rare that I'm in an interview and taking notes, Maggie. So thank you for that oh, closing. Goodness. <laughs> it's fabulous. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. No, this was my pleasure. It was a joy. It's joy for us too. Thank you. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. You know, lately, Grant, the Authors Guild has gotten some attention from authors uh, because as far as I can tell, they're the only entity uh, that writers can turn to if they're hoping for some advocacy in the realm of AI and all the impacts that AI is having on authors. So today's trend is an exploration of why authors should join the Authors Guild, which I actually absolutely think they should. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, I wrote a post on my Substack in the aftermath of the Atlantic article that exposed that a whole bunch of authors' books have been used to train AI without their consent. Uh, and I said, you know, become a member of the Authors Guild, and here's why. And it's probably the single most meaningful thing that an author who's worried about the impacts of AI can do at this moment. Yeah, I saw that, Brooke, and I, of course, have had the Authors Guild on my radar for years and have seen them primarily as an association that takes up copyright and piracy issues. So I guess they've, they're really meeting this moment where AI is concerned. You know, it feels a little bit like their work to date has been a training ground for where we find ourselves right now. I agree. Uh, the Authors Guild has long been an association that has like reviewed our contracts on behalf of our authors. Uh, they rely on membership for their survival. Uh, and then on their site, they say that your membership helps them to protect free speech, honor copyright, and ensure fair compensation practices in the changing publishing landscape. And my own experience with them is that they're really looking out for authors' best interest. Uh, they fight the good fight when it comes to issues that threaten authors' livelihoods. And since AI is encroaching into that space now, you know, by which I mean it does feel like a threat to a lot of authors, I have just been suggesting to everybody to become members mainly to help them and, and just support their advocacy. Yeah, I do the same. And it's it's the only entity that, that directly and truly represents authors. And authors are, you know, we know that authors are so often taken advantage of. You know, the system is really rigged against us in so many ways. And, and so many things are very complicated and have a lot of legalese involved. And that's not most authors' strong suit. So I think authors should join uh, for that support, but also just to support the organization overall. What would you say are the primary reasons to be a member of a guild or an association, Brooke? 
To me, it's about power and numbers. I mean, some guilds and associations are about networking, you know, just having some place to turn when the shit hits the fan, like you have a question, you have a need. Um, that definitely happened when the Atlantic article came out. You know, a lot of authors felt angry and betrayed and they didn't know what to do, but the Authors Guild was actually doing something, you know, in the very proactive form of bringing lawsuits against these major AI companies. And then that feels satisfying because you're not just sitting there alone, twiddling your thumbs, wondering, you know, how should you get involved? Uh, the Authors Guild, you know, has sued a lot of places over the years, notably Google over its library project, even though the Authors Guild lost that case. But still, you know, they're attempting mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're out there and they're fighting the fight, as I said. So, you know, for decades, there's just been zero regulation on these companies that are digitizing our content. And then lo and behold, AI is training on it. So I think um, those are the reasons, you know, for, the most modern reason to be invested in the Authors Guild, but in general, to be part of a, a membership that's doing good work on your behalf. I'm glad I'm a member and, and the membership extends to other things as well, such as different educational opportunities and a writing community and even access to more affordable insurance. You know, um, I just think it's, it's, it's nice to know that there's an org that cares for writers. And so we should all support that the best that we can. And I want to thank you listeners for caring about us by listening every week. We hope that our content cares for your writing and your creativity and your soul we are here every week for you with that spirit, and we hope we'll see you next week. Thank you.